Hi. Since the initial recording of this episode, and as of June 24th, Roe v. Wade has been overturned. In light of that, we wanted to start this episode out by highlighting some resources that can help those seeking reproductive health care, including, but not limited to, safe abortions. All of these that I'm going to list verbally will also be linked in the description, and many are led by and specifically catered to marginalized bodies, including queer and trans people. So there's Elevated Access, which is volunteer pilots volunteering their time to transport people. There's Act Blue. It's just a huge list of like 90 plus abortion funds that you can donate to at once. Keepourclinics.org is specifically for if you want to donate directly to uh, independent clinics. Bunklebunnies.org is a Texas queer-led abortion fund. Jane's Due Process is for young people, youth and teens, but it's temporarily shut down because it's in Texas and they're not sure how to proceed. The afiacenter.org is a fund for black women and girls in Texas. Secureactblue.com slash HHJ is BIPOC queer-led in Appalachia, specifically, I believe, West Virginia. Yellowhammerfund.org is Alabama, and indigenouswomenrising.org is indigenous-led reproductive rights. I think also two-spirit people are involved in this as well. And then, of course, there's a Chicago abortion fund, helps get funding to people all across the country. Please stay safe and take care of yourselves. Yes, please make sure to take care of yourselves and, when possible, the community around you. And with that, here's our episode. Hi, welcome to Poetically Speaking. We're your co-hosts, Eliana Horning and Kendall Wack. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're so glad you're here. So glad you're here. For our first official, yay, episode, we wanted to talk about the quote-unquote women's reproductive health movement, specifically the fact that it's not just a women's movement. We wanted to get into the ways that healthcare, culture, language, legislation, and other things around reproductive rights affect transgender and non-binary people who were assigned female at birth. In other words, people who aren't women, but can still very much get pregnant. And also, not to forget, the cis women, trans women, and women identifying people who can't get pregnant. So, to start us off, Kendall has our first official poem of the podcast. Take it away. Today's poem is by poet Andy Sheridan, and it's titled, I Think You Know Too Much About My Genitalia. The poem reads, There's a pocket inside of me where I keep jokes, my clitoris as a mushroom instead of a long stem, my thickening vocal cords together a single, harder phallus in my throat. The idea is that I don't like the idea of being penetrated, even if I actually do. The idea is that the ginormosity of being empty, husked, should be something that troubles me, and it does. I wake and put on my morning wood. Someone else tightens the viney clasp on my left hip. Someone said penis and wanting and enough, and that someone was me. I am afraid that my gender deserves more than my body can give me. My body gives rooted grief only and only. I'm afraid that the tale of my genome is irreparably yonic, a genome from history without transplanted nipples. One January, my ex and I touched each other with germinating fingerfuls of anti-yeast cream. That January was not the last time I ached for cream, or more than what I knew that I wanted. The truth is I worry that everything about me is final and fungal. The truth is I worry that my becoming is more violent to others than peaceful to me. 
the joke turned and tucked itself in into boys XL boxer briefs. For those of you looking to maybe dive deeper into some of Andy's other incredible work, you can find them at TransChivalry on Instagram. Um, thank you again so much, Andy, for giving us permission to use your piece in our podcast. Um, it was a great first poem to, to kick us off. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much, Andy. That was beautiful and truly just very interesting. Like, I think that's the best way to describe that. I just, I love the idea of clitoris as a mushroom. I just want to start off there. Crazy. Absolutely. Insane. Absolutely. <laughs> so good. Oh my god. But yeah, no, I just, I think it's really very scientific, almost like, I don't want to say grimy, but like it feels a little like visceral, you know? It's not, it's not like a cute, it's not Emily Dickinson, you know? Definitely uh, not. And we love it for that. All right? Yeah. Go ahead. I don't know what you want to say about this. I feel like what I particularly liked about this poem was the way that it captures all of the contradictions about transness and existing in your own body as a trans person and trying to come to terms with your gender. Just like, you know, the the idea is that I don't like the idea of being penetrated even if I actually do. Like there's always, there can be two th opposite things existing at once and I think this right. piece captures that really well. Also, can I just say the line, I am afraid that my gender deserves more than my body can give me chills snaps everywhere insane. <laughs> I, really insane. I wish I could ghost write that I my no. brain my brain my my soul ghost wrote that um, <laughs> right no I literally like when you sent that to me and I looked at it I was like come on <laughs> I feel like every good poem has like one of those moments where it's like you've got to be kidding me like <laughs> no absolutely sort of just... like that's that's the line that you get tattooed on your body that is the line. Oh, sure. That's the. I, I feel like sure. every poem has that. I think that's what you're kind of talking about, like the tattooable line. Like obviously, yeah. all poetry can be tattooable, but like specifically, I feel like most poems have like one or two lines where it's like, I want that in, ingrained in my body forever. Right. It's like you can boil it down. It's like the essence of the poem. Absolutely. Just, I don't know. It's like if you're making syrup, it's the simple syrup of the poem. I'm afraid that my gender deserves more than my body can give me. Ugh. God, Andy, come on. <laughs> give the rest of us a break. Literally. <laughs> anyway, to kind of bring everything back to the topic that today's episode is going to be on, I think what really resonated me with this piece specifically was the title, beyond the content, of course. But the title, I think, kind of shows us a huge part of the issue. Like, the idea that, like, I think you know too much about my genitalia. And it kind of hints at the cis-gendered obsession with trans genitalia. Whether that's cis straight people, cis gay people, whatever, it's just the idea that there's this obsession. Like, you know, when it became the issue of like trans people using the, the correct gender-affirming bathroom, everyone was so obsessed with body parts. When it comes to trans people in sports, everyone is so obsessed with genitalia and body parts. And in so many ways, we reduce trans people, we as a society, reduce trans people to their body parts specifically, except when it matters, except in cases where their reproductive rights are being questioned, except in cases where 
their physical safety, their physical health is being challenged because of their transness. It's, it's, the focus is never on the right thing. And there is this obsession until it actually matters. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's sort of this idea of, like, the question of, did you get the surgery? But, like, they never want to know. And they never want to sort of, like, actually go into, like, what does a surgery entail? It's sort of just, like, we want this surface-level information. We want to know the interesting parts. But then as soon as we get into, like, oh, how do you treat a trans man who has an STI? How do you sort of, like, have gender-affirming language and inclusivity in that instance? Silence. We don't want it anymore. That's too hard. I don't want to do that. I have to relearn everything. It's like, yeah, you do, but maybe you should just do it. <laughs> no, absolutely. There's there's so much resistance on the part of cis people to learn about transness, to broaden their horizon. And I think a lot of that discomfort, the discomfort that comes with the learning curve is manifesting in a lot of like public transphobia. Like for example, I don't know who among us knows about this instance, but it went viral on Twitter. Um, Mm. But as we talked about in the last episode, I graduated from Loyola University Chicago. And a year or two ago, there was a video of someone from my school. Actually, it was the brother of someone that I like had been in a group project with. So that was already a whole weird level of connection. But he, he went viral on Twitter for taking a Snapchat video of himself throwing out the free tampons that the campus reproductive justice organization, shout out SRJ, Students for Reproductive Justice at Loyola University Chicago for all the work that they do. Um, but they had put tampons in the men's restrooms on campus as part of their like free menstrual health care initiative. And he took a Snapchat video that he posted publicly of him throwing out the tampons, being like, no man needs tampons. And it went viral for the, for good reasons. Like, people were calling him out. There was public outrage. But it's still just, like, the idea that you wholeheartedly, without shame, are filming that. Filming that act of blatant transphobia and posting it. Like, it's it's just insane the way that mainstream society treats trans people and trans bodies like they're not important like they don't exist right it's it's the existing part that i think is is realistic because it's trans bodies are almost elevated to the point of like higher importance because of how like so many conservative pundits and voices are saying like oh it's you know it's the downfall of society it's the downfall of the family whatever when in reality they're just they're just trying to use the bathroom, you know? Like, there's this weird obsession. Uh, it's, it's like, a double... I, I think about this kind of thing all the time, this double thing of power. It's like completely unbalanced. Like, on the one end, they're like, you have no power, you don't even exist. And on the other hand, it's like, you could destroy a society. And it's like, you can't have both at the same time, but somehow, somehow they figured it out. But just in terms of, like, actual facts... And I say that like, I don't believe you. I don't believe that happened. I believe it happened. But like in terms of like scholarly studies, because there are some, not enough. It's, it's a pretty underrepresented field and underrepresented group of people. But I did find a study published in 2021 
in, ironically, Women's Health Issues Journal. So, you know, we they tried because the article is about trans masculine non-binary assigned people assigned female at birth people so it's like they use all of the right terminology they're talking to these people directly and yet they're still like published in the women's health journal because where else where else is going to accept them i was just going to say there's not like a a trans health journal unfortunately there should be one if if anyone wants to start one we'd love to see it no you're you're 100 right but i was just like when I was reading it, I was reading all of these, like, wonderful, like, nuanced descriptions of gender, and then, like, at the top, the headers, like, women's health issues, I was like, okay, (laughs) not a single woman interviewed, but all right. I just, in general, in terms of any type of healthcare, but specifically if we're talking about um, genital and, like, reproductive health, trans mask, like, trans men, I haven't really talked to any any non-binary people, that have this sort of problem, but I know several trans men in my life sort of have to go out of their way to find inclusive healthcare, like both in terms of just like seeking it out and finding it and also physicality, like because they're so scarce, oftentimes these guys have to go like out of their way, drive long distances, take tons of public transportation just to get to somewhere that's not gonna like be openly hostile or just mishandle them and just in general gynecologists even if they are like trans friendly gynecologists are often not equipped to handle uh trans masculine or gender non-conforming patients in terms of like language and terminology to make patients feel comfortable or safe i mean it's like even as like a relatively cis presenting woman like i still don't really get believed at my gynecologist a lot of times so and that's you know i'm the standard yeah that's like a whole issue in and of itself it is but it's like gynecologists in general i guess are just sort of like blase they don't really it's like "Eh, it's whatever you have a vagina but uh so some gynecologists not just in terms of like language and terminology but some like literally refuse care to uh, transmasculine and non-binary or gender non-conforming patients, like our prejudice, like weird questions from healthcare professionals, just all sorts of things. It runs the whole gambit. And it's not just about inclusivity, like it is important and language that we use is important and it's important for people to feel comfortable, but it's not just about comfort. When healthcare professionals don't understand or acknowledge trans identities, trans people are less likely to get healthcare, which is obviously bigger than comfort. So from this article, in the 2015 US transgender survey, 33% of respondents, 33% who saw a healthcare provider in the last year reported at least one negative experience related to being transgender. Nearly one quarter of respondents did not seek needed care in the past year because of fear of discrimination. That was in 2015, and things have gotten more visible, yes, but also more hostile towards trans people and trans bodies. So I, the number of people who are just not comfortable going to health, like, centers and and, uh, providers, it's probably gone up. It's probably much higher. But just, like, in general, this article 
was very detailed interviews with 20 transmasculine or non-binary identified people, mostly white, which is a whole other thing because that adds a whole layer of access and privilege. But so this is the most, quote unquote, most privileged group of transmasculine or non-binary or gender non-conforming people. So most of the time, most people feel super, super uncomfortable seeking healthcare. They get weird questions. They have just in general, here it says clinicians who seem to be uncomfortable providing them care, like the people who are literally being paid to provide you care are uncomfortable specifically because of their trans or non-binary identity. Just in general, invasive questions I saw a lot in the study, just like people asking just really weird things about not even just genitalia, but just like the whole body, like how did hormones affect this aspect? It's like, whoa, whoa. Assumptions made about sexuality and sexual health and sexual practice, assumptions made about everything. Just in general, really invasive healthcare providers, obviously care is not accessible and oftentimes identities aren't respected like they there's no in places like these oftentimes there isn't there's that male female sex binary like check one and sort of there's no like option for preferred name or correct pronouns and even when there is uh, a lot of people have mentioned that sometimes those are just aren't respected like identities in general these trans non-binary people, their identities are not respected. So essentially, like, I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent this study. Like, there are several people who talk about like really positive experiences with healthcare providers, but it's it's clear that they're in the minority, and it's also clear that just in general, the overarching fields of like women's healthcare is like a, it's that language is a point of anxiety and concern because how can you feel safe and accepted when you're not even represented in the name of a field? No, absolutely. And I think that's something that's really shocking to me is just how conservative, I guess for lack of a better word, a medical like department can be, a medical, a, a group of people who study for so long like I think I've always just put like doctors and of all kinds kind of above all of this stuff in my brain and I mean like I also know that's because I haven't had transphobia issues with doctors I've never had that issue like I've definitely had like doctors not taking me seriously as a female presenting person but that's very different than doctors being purposefully antagonistic towards or just completely dismissive of trans identities and trans people and I think specifically like the field of gynecology is one that I'm like well a lot of gynecologists are women so I think that I just see them as being more liberal and infallible I guess to to say the least like they're they're incapable of committing these acts of transphobia in my mind because it's like well if you are a woman in a field to do with quote-unquote women's reproductive health, I just feel like you have to be more liberal and more leftist and more woke to to use that term. And I think it's just shocking to me 
how many doctors are just terrible people. No, absolutely. I agree. I wanted to add a little bit on that just because it's sort of like the idea that doctors are taught everything. Like, oh, I feel mm. I feel the same. Like, I feel like if you're in school for however long and you're learning all of these medical things, you should be learning about all the variances of human beings. Like, yeah, there shouldn't be this huge, like, I don't understand this thing. Like, this is, this is not a new, trans and non-binary people are not new. And if you're not learning about this, in, in terms of how to take care of people, I don't understand. I don't understand how there's that big of a gap. Yeah. Because this is this is the sort of thing that should be addressed, I suppose, in some capacity in medical school. Because you shouldn't just get through medical school and be like, well, don't really know that much about trans people. Don't really know that much about intersex people. Sucks. Yeah. I w- I was just gonna say I. I've stumbled across the TikTok of an intersex person um, recently, and they were talking about how they went in and the doctors were treating them like they were like an alien, like taking pictures without permission, like showing random medical staff that had nothing to do. Like they brought in like the receptionist and was like, she's worked in this field for a long time, so she might know something to look at this person's genitalia. Like, people with no medical training, like, not saying that that receptionist or that whoever that was, like, couldn't have known, but, like, where, how is that their business? Also, this person was a minor when this whole thing happened. Like, it's just, if you're not learning about bodies that are different, like, I think this also kind of goes into, like, racism in the medical field, which we don't have to get into right now, um, because that's a whole separate problematic topic that we need to address, but I think it's just, like... It, it just shows how limited doctors, like the the tools and the resources that our doctors are getting are. Like, if you only know how to care for someone who is white and able-bodied and male, mainly, then like, how do you have a degree? How, right. how can you call yourself a doctor? Like, obviously, not every doctor is going to know everything, but it's like, if you're a doctor specializing in reproductive systems, how can you not know how to care for reproductive systems of people that differ? And, like, the thing is, like, there, there are cis women who go through these issues, too, who, right. who doctors can't deal with whatever they have going on, who doctors don't know what the problem is, what the issue is, and it's just... It's insane to me, the, the limitations of the medical field. And, like, part of it might be, you know, America, because America is awful. But I do feel like, I mean, I don't know statistics about trans healthcare in other countries, but it's just insane to me how, how little we know and how little we've studied. And, yeah, it's just, it's so unbelieving how systemic transphobia is and the fear specifically like the fear aspect like you are so afraid of trans bodies that you can't even learn about it right it's 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 fear and it's also just like complete fascination it's like the freak show yeah of old it's like trans bodies are so weird and wacky let's look at them like pay 50 cents to come look at this person this bearded lady you know like that's it's it goes so far back and trans people are never they're they're fetishized like i think we've talked about this before ourselves 
uh, trans people are fetishized, but not, they're not seen as people. They're seen as these, like, things to look at, things to think about. Like, wow, isn't that crazy that this person exists? It's like, as a person. <laughs> exactly. Like, li- listen to the part of that sentence. Isn't it crazy that this person exists? Person being the key point. Also, going off of what you mentioned about, like, access barriers around um, trans, non-binary, gender, non-conforming BIPOC, I think it's also interesting to look at how, like, geographical location impacts accessibility for trans-affirming healthcare. Like, for example, I live in Chicago, and I know of a handful of places that offer trans-affirming, trans-inclusive, trans-friendly care medical care that is Um, and obviously I've heard from other people in the community that there are issues with these facilities as there are I mean a whole issue is so many people um, trying to get in that is already like kind of like an overpopulation issue not really overpopulation but you know what I mean over there's there's too many people trying to get care yeah overextended Um, they're full none of this is to even mention the other logistical problems like this is just one problem alone but if I were to live in like a red state I just wouldn't have access to these things and you know race fluency in English sex all of these things aside I just think it's interesting to see how geography itself and the politics of geography have such a vital role in how human beings can get health care like it's it's insane to me and I think this is the same idea that can be seen with all of the information coming out about the overturning of Roe v. Wade that's projected to happen soon uh, with the idea that there's going to be tons and tons of geographical barriers in the way of people who have uteruses to get the care that they need and One of the biggest things being left out in conversations about abortion care is the fact that trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people need access to abortions just like cis women do. And it's something that's not making headlines. It's something that people aren't talking about, even though it's such a huge issue. And I was reading this study uh, from 2020 published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology where researchers surveyed transgender, non-binary, and gender-expansive people, that's their wording, aged 18 or above who were assigned female or intersect at birth. Um, And the the point of the survey or the study was to fill existing evidence gaps on the abortion experiences and preferences of transgender, non-binary, and gender-expansive people in the United States to inform policies and practices to improve access to and quality of abortion care for this specific population. And of... What they found was that of the 210 transgender, non-binary, and gender expansive survey participants, 32% of them, that is 67 people, reported at least one unwanted pregnancy ending in abortion. That was just one, literally just one. And that's not even to mention the survey participants that needed access to abortion care multiple times throughout the survey. And obviously I know that 67 is not a huge number, but 32% is a significant number. And when you consider that that's just part of a small sample group, you can only imagine 
how much that number translates to real living people. Not that the survey participants weren't real living people, but when you apply that data to the, the real population, it shows that this is not just a cis woman issue. Abortion care and access to abortion care is an issue that affects so many people in the queer community. But it's not just about abortion. What cis women are not bringing up during the fight for reproductive rights, I mean, we already know that because they're not mentioning trans people at all, but what they're not bringing up is that so many trans people get vital gender-affirming physical care at reproductive health organizations such as Planned Parenthood. This fight is not just for cis women to get abortions. This is for people to keep getting care that they need to be able to stay alive. Like there are already so many healthcare barriers when it comes to trans people, like Ellie was explaining earlier. And this ban, this overturning is just going to add so many more. And while white women, like mainly white cis women, are publicly crying, saying that we're going back to the days of the handmaiden's tale, they're not the ones that are facing the biggest impacts of these decisions. Like, obviously this is affecting racial minorities more than anyone else, but this is also impacting trans people so deeply. And in one of the few, few articles I could find about this issue, posted by the Washington Post, they quoted Emmett Schelling, a 41-year-old trans man and who is the executive director of the Transgender Education Network of Texas, said, the people who actually burn when everything burns down are people like me, are black trans women, are queer kids who have been kicked out on the streets by their family. He said, they are at enormous risk for sexual assault, for physical assault, for a lifetime of poverty, a lifetime of lack of healthcare access. That's the issue, is that it's not just a white cis woman issue like they'd like to believe. This issue is so intersectional. There are so many other people who are affected and affected in such deep, deep ways, especially this group, the, the trans people, the non-binary people, the gender non-conforming people who are also having their health care fully stripped away. Uh, yeah, and I think also sort of as Emmett Schelling touched on a little bit, when big like human rights offenses like this happen, white people, uh, in this case white cis women, are usually the last ones to be crying about it because they're the last ones to be affected. In When you have white women crying about, like, The Handmaid's Tale, The Handmaid's Tale was, you know, it's, it's dystopian, but at the same time, it's what a lot of, like, black indigenous people of color have been experiencing, sort of, like, forced sterilization, and white cis women being the last ones to cry because they're being affected, and they're also the ones who are going to be listened to, even though people like Emmett Schelling have been actively fighting and talking about these issues for probably years and they're always going to be the first ones to talk about it because their rights are always going to be the first to go and i don't think it's a coincidence that so many states are rolling back trans rights protections at the same time that we're seeing this push to overturn roe v wade like i i don't think that's a coincidence i think they're just we're just going backwards. We're oh, absolutely unwinding. not. And they're definitely, like, the people who are doing these things, who are making these decisions, are rolling off of the fact that, like, no one is talking about it. They're doing all of these things under the rug. And obviously, the people in the trans community, the people in the queer community, the people in, like, the black community, we're all screaming. Everyone is screaming. 
But no one's listening because mm-hmm. the white women are only crying about themselves. White cis right. women. Right. They're, they're the ones wearing the pussy hats and being like, ah, my body, my choice. And it's like, yes, your body, your choice. But also, you are the last one to have said that. Everyone else has been saying that forever. Also, it's like, statistically, who is going to have the funds generally to be able to travel to continue to get abortion care right it's it's not these people from the marginalized groups it's it's the people who are screaming the loudest and so i think Mm -hmm. that's where it's just frustrating that these people who claim to be allies are not screaming about the fact that the people that they're supposedly allies of are losing their basic human rights like obviously abortion care is a human right but like there are general health care human rights beyond just abortion care, like physical, like access to hormones. These things are being stripped away silently and no one is saying anything and it's so frustrating. Right. And I think that's kind of the point of why we're having this conversation or why we're doing this episode is to take those frustrations and use them productively to start conversations that we're not seeing being had from the people who have the floor. Absolutely, yeah, and sort of opening it with a beautiful piece of art by someone within the community who likely will be affected by these human rights being stripped away, I think is quintessential to our goal, uh, goal in poetically speaking. So I think this is a pretty successful first episode. Anything else you want to add? No, I don't think so, um, other than... You know, just call your legislators, call everyone that you can, donate to trans funds, donate to people of color, to women of color who are seeking abortion care, donate to all of these things, use your voice, have a platform, and also don't forget that trans rights are human rights every single day. On that note, everybody, uh, stay safe, stay cool, wear your mask, and keep fighting, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.